Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau, and this episode is going to be fun. Uh, a while ago, uh, well before I started this podcast, I came across some story, I do not even remember where I ran into it, claiming that there was this French-Canadian guy who was reputed to be the strongest man who ever lived. So when one of the most popular guests we have ever had on the show suggested we do an episode on Louis Cyr, that was an absolute no-brainer. So today's guest is Jason Newton. He was our guest back in episode 18, where we discussed his awesome article, These French Canadians of the Woods are half-wild folk, wilderness, whiteness, and work in North America, 1840 to 1955. Jason, welcome back to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Hey, how's it going? Good to be back. Now, this is going to be fun. Now, before we get to the Louis Cyr story... How did you come across Louis Louis Cyr? I mean, it's funny because I always want to pronounce it Louis, but in the movie anyway, there's a movie about this guy. It's always just Louis. How did you come yeah. across the Louis Cyr story? Yeah, I've I've heard it both ways, Louis and Louis. So um, yeah, I guess either way. But um, yes, I think um, I, I first came across this character when I was initially researching for my article that we talked about last time, looking into some of the books on French Canadian immigration, um, some of the encyclopedia articles, and you'll find, you know, famous uh, French Canadians sometimes, and you see uh, Louis Cyr, strongman, and that, you know, that piques my interest right away. <laughs> and I was also doing some work too on you know ideas of gender and masculinity so i didn't know if i could use this material but i thought i would uh, take a look and it ended up being super interesting and tying into a lot of my other interests that i'm sure we'll get into oh that's awesome so it was kind of like you heard the story and then it just so happened that you were researching a whole bunch of stuff where this is story absolutely fit yeah, and, and you'll see, I mean, some just kind of amazing connections here, like serendipitous connections to a lot of the other stuff that I research, some of the stuff that we talked about on the last episode, and just a, a bunch of other stuff, too. No, that's awesome. No, okay, so let's get this Louis, Louis Sear story. First of all, he was not born Louis Sear. What, what was his name when he was born, and why do we know him now as Louis Sear? His name was Cyprino Sear. Um, I guess, you know, that's a more traditional French Canadian name. And when he finally made his way to America uh, in 1878 and began to get a little more famous, he decided, like many immigrants do, to Americanize his name. And uh, Louis was uh, a good name. So he kept his last name and, and changed the first name. So it would just be a little more uh, common in America. Gotcha. No, you're right. Something we hear a lot about for sure. But one thing, I guess, I guess I want kind of want to set the ground rules on the Lewis Sears story right off the bat. Um, how much of the Lewis Sears story that we can find, even on like the internet, is legit, 
versus how much is just crazy legend because tall tales are told about this guy forever. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. And that's something I wanted to bring up. You know, this was a guy who made his living off of crafting a story around himself. And he, you know, was a performer. And sure. part of his performance was not only these feats of strength that we'll get into, but, you know, kind of his origin story, almost like a superhero, you know. And, and so I think, you know, from birth, to death, really, we have to be skeptical about everything we know about him because not only was he trying to promote himself, but, um, you know, he had promoters working for him. Uh, he had newspapers who were trying to promote him as well. Um, and, and we have also a, a, an audience at this time in the late 19th century who are willing to suspend their disbelief. This is a time when, you know, circus performances sure. are popular. Harry Houdini is going to eventually be popular. At this time, we see spiritualism as kind of a fad in the United States. And so people were, were willing to kind of give in to the hype. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I was going to mention this. A lot of the, the facts of his life, even very basic things like his weight at different times, and his feats of strength are debatable. Yeah, can we start right off with uh, the weight at his birth? Which I thought was, because you mentioned, is right from birth to death. We have no idea what's true, what's not. Because I've read one where one place it said it was born at 18 pounds. Right yeah, I, I have um, I have 13 pounds. Uh, That's awesome. But, you know, I, it's, I'm not surprised that, that there's a range. And there, there seems to be a range with all the different kind of statistics we'll talk about here so but you know uh, again there's probably a nugget of truth there sure. um and he was probably born uh, a, a large a large baby and, and his mom again I've, I've seen that six feet 270 yeah and again i have <laughs> um six one 240 so I mean, <laughs> there's, there's awesome. just a range yeah now it's cool because well i want to start early on it seems that there was a pretty strong influence uh, when Lewis was real little from his grandfather. It seemed like later on, Lewis became kind of like a known as not only just this enormous strong man, but the, somebody who was the ability to spin a yarn, spin a tail. So, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And a lot of stories seem to suggest he got that from his grandfather. If you come across, what's his grandfather's story and how does he impact Lewis? Yeah, and so this is where some of my other research actually ties in. His grandfather, Pierre, was uh, Cour de Bois, um, which was this kind of mythical French-Canadian uh, profession. You know, other people participated in it as well, but French-Canadians were known as these uh, uh, fur trappers who would travel into wilderness areas and, um, you know, trap furs. And, and he really had a, a good relationship with his grandfather. His grandfather really instilled in him this idea that, you know, being tough and being strong was very important in his life. And we see with, with his grandfather, uh, Lewis would go to the local blacksmith shop in town. The blacksmith was named uh, Trudeau. No relation, I think, to the prime minister. <laughs> um, but, but the blacksmith in Sears town of uh, Napierville was um, a local strongman, just kind of 
by because of his profession as a bl- blacksmith, people would sure. were interested in that profession, would watch him, the blacksmith work hard, lift these heavy objects. And sometimes blacksmiths, again, in, in Quebec or elsewhere, would put a little showmanship into their work, lifting their anvils or maybe with an outstretched hand, touching their sledge to their nose, these little feats of strength. And I'm sure that was a big influence, you know, uh, Lewis's grandfather taking him there. But, you know, I've also read that his grandfather and, and Lewis would go into the woods and kind of lift stones and roll tree trunks and and climb trees. And then on the farm, they would kind of carry sacks of grain and, and lift animals just as kind of these, you know, uh, agricultural primitive kind of uh, workouts. And so, yeah, sure. he got the, the kind of inspiration, I think, from his grandfather, who was, because of his profession, uh, kind of tough, tough guy. Right. It was the, is I, my imagining, the, my timeline anyway, I could be completely wrong, is that around this time, the coureurs de bois are kind of like a declining kind of profession. And it almost seems like those at that time would view it as almost like the legend of yesteryear type legendary tough guys who used to be around from way back when. Yeah, I completely agree. This would be kind of really tore, you know, I think his grandfather lived until he was like 103. But but so this, you know, this would have really been at that time where that profession was really fading away and really, you know, the more um, lucrative fur trading was going to be really far in far western Canada and in northern Canada and maybe even um, into Alaska. Uh, so yeah, you're you're completely right. I think I think you know this is again part of that myth of where Sear came from. Now, did he was he like uh, I guess destined originally to follow in his grandfather's footsteps like what was he what was he trying to do like with like a rural job like a lumberjack type job or some type of farming job yeah you know i think like sierra is in many ways very typical of many french canadians you know we mentioned him migrating to massachusetts but before that he was part of this um agricultural community that was you know working um, maybe most of the year um, on a farm, uh, maybe raising uh, what the family needed to survive and selling a little bit of surplus, and then working in the woods, in the lumber camp. So here is where my other connect, you know, my connection sure. to Sear, which I, I had no idea when I first read about him, but it seems that Sear made uh, a living early on as a lumberjack. Um, which is, again, this profession that that French Canadians, uh, uh, according to many Americans, were kind of innately suited to do. Sear was almost this kind of mythical lumberjack from the very beginning. You know, he started working in the woods at the age of 12. And apparently he and again, uh, I'm going to say allegedly or apparently a lot. (laughs) Right. But right, right. Uh, allegedly he got the job because he, he was 12 years old walking through the woods and saw an injured uh, full-grown lumberman and he carried this this man out of the woods to safety. And nobody could believe that a 12-year-old boy had, had done this. 
And so at 12, you know, alongside his farming work, he starts to work in the woods. And uh, again, allegedly, he's doing as much work as a full-grown man, carrying the heaviest logs, carrying two logs at a time, really bringing, you know, showmanship into his wage work very early on. And, and, and same thing in his farming. He, you know, he would he would uh, carry animals around, you know, uh, uh, cows and horses, and we'll get into that more later. But yeah, he he's he's typical in in his jobs of what French Canadians were doing at this time. All right, cool. Now, how old was he when his family moved down to Lowell? I think at the age of 13, 1878, he, he moved to Lowell, and uh, he starts working in um, a factory. And, and again, this is very typical sure. uh, yep. of the French Canadian experience in America. But there's a few problems with his early jobs in, in factories. Uh, Sear himself finds the work a little constricting. Uh, you know, he doesn't really get to uh, do the kind of full range of motion and, and, and the type of physically demanding work that he wanted to do. I bet it's a lot uh, different than what he had been doing, you know, working with the lumber and working on the farms for sure. Yeah. And so actually he, he quits and he goes to work on farms outside of, of Lowell. And, and this is much better for him. And, and he's apparently much more efficient at these type of jobs in Massachusetts. We see for the first time Sear begins to compete in, in amateur strongman competition. We see the first competition was in 1878 when he was challenged to lift a full-grown horse off the ground. You know, this is a little different than you might think. Typically, um, these horses were kind of put onto a platform. Okay. But it wasn't necessarily that he was lifting it up and kind of like by, <laughs> sure. the, by the legs or something, though you see pictures that depict that. Uh, <laughs> he was on a platform and then he would lift the full platform up. And so this is, I, I think, you know, according to the sources, when Sierra first gets kind of his taste of fame, his taste of uh, the strongman life and this idea that he might be able to do this professionally. Yeah, it, maybe we could just talk about the profession generally, because this is the whole you know, touring strongman is something that, you know, we're not seeing today. I don't head down to the local arena to check out the latest and greatest strongman. So what did this strongman culture look like? Who sets up these tests to see who can lift? Does one challenge the other? What is a competition? If I went to a strongman competition, what am I seeing? Yeah, you know, it really depends on um, what time period. You know, in 1878, this is all very amateur and in, in, with Sear in 1878, this is all very local. So it's very much at the local tavern, maybe even at the local work site. You see a big stone and you say, who can lift that stone the highest? And then, you know, working class people at this time um, have a propensity to bet, right? And so you start sure. money circulating. Um, and then you start to see, you know, one small competition turning into a larger regional competition and then these strongman competitions growing organically in that way. And, and it's really Sear is really around at the birth of it becoming regional 
national and even global. So he's almost um, setting the trends in, in strongman competitions uh, in, in this very early stage. Later, you'd have crowds of thousands. But at this early period, it's, uh, again, very much a few working class guys getting together to lift stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and how does he go from being, you know, this dude from just outside Lowell who can, you know, lift some lift some stuff and impress the people at the tavern to being someone who I'm going to go out and make a name for myself by being able to do this for a living? Again, Sierra is, is similar to many other uh, French-Canadian immigrants in that he's going back and forth across the border. So 1878, he wins that strong man competition by 1881 we see he's back in lumber camps in quebec gotcha. but this time his reputation had grown to the point where people would actually hike out to the lumber camp to watch him work so this is all just word of mouth yeah yeah very much gotcha. you know, maybe you might get you know I, I i can't confirm this but maybe you might get a little something in the local newspaper um, but very much, you know, word of mouth, uh, particularly in rural areas uh, of the Northeast and rural areas of Quebec. And so he decides, you know, if people are going to come watch me work, maybe I could really make this into a profession. He's a, a strong guy, but he's not a dumb guy. And he sees this opportunity to move away from what is really at the time grueling wage work into something that might be more lucrative and even though he's lifting, you know, more less demanding than working full time as a lumberjack or a farm worker. In the 1880s, he's dabbling in, in different competitions and these, these strongman competitions, he's competing in, as opposed to the local ones now in more regional ones. So we see in 1885, he beats Canada's strongest man, uh, David Michaud, and then um, soon after that goes back to Massachusetts and beats um, this famous American Oscar Mathis in a lifting competition. Um, and, and then, you know, he goes kind of back to different jobs, but that's really when his career as a strongman picks up. And from then on, it's more in his mind, I think, building up his reputation. Gotcha. Now, one thing you mentioned uh, was that he wasn't a dumb man. And some, I mentioned that because a major part of the movie, by the way, there's a movie about him. You can get it on YouTube, which is absolutely awesome, is the fact that he was not able to read. He was illiterate. Now, is that legit? Yeah, I've, I've heard, uh, I've read that he, he was, you know, at the height of his fame, still learning to write. So I, I can completely believe that. Um, we know, you know, in, in his situation, if, if he was working as a farm laborer and, uh, lumberjack, you know, it's very likely had, he had very little schooling, maybe some schooling associated with church. So I can, I can completely believe that. Um, I, I will say I did see the movie, uh, many years ago now. But this is maybe just like another level of um, fiction on top of sure. an already fictionalized story. Um, but yeah, it's sure, it's certain that he didn't have a lot of formal education. Gotcha. And now we go back to this guy David Michaud, and you noted that he was Canada's strongest man. Now, was there like a governing body who named you Canada? Do you walk around with the title belt? How, how do you distinguish yourself as being the official Canada's strongest man at this time? 
No, there's no governing body. And if, if you kind of, uh, you know, by word of mouth, by newspaper, if you can't find anybody that can beat you, I think you self-declare as world strong. <laughs> and I think we'll see, you know, if we move a little forward in sure. Sears' life, this is what he does, basically. So, you know, he, he's working still in, in different types of jobs in the 1880s. He's actually a police officer in, in Montreal, um, where, again, allegedly he can kind of uh, do crowd control by himself. But moving into being a police officer is actually very important because uh, police were a really important part of this kind of sporting life. This, okay. this working class life, gambling, of kind of record setting, of gossip, and, and a lot of kind of uh, sensationalized journalism. So I think by becoming a policeman, he's kind of getting in Montreal in this big city. He's kind of moving away from small town rural life and getting into this network of, of this sporting life network where he's going to get connections to be able to build his reputation. And from police work, he goes right into owning uh, a bar and a hotel in Montreal. And, and like many bars at this time in the 1880s, 1890s, there was a gym in the back. And this sure. was common. So you, you'd go and, and you'd awesome. get, get a few beers, and that's when you would start start lifting weights. Probably not the same thing, <laughs> but uh, that that's was very common. Idea. Yeah. And so with these connections he's making in the, in the uh, uh, kind of sporting world and through his bar – uh, this is where he kind of gets hooked up with different promoters to start touring uh, in Canada and the United States and eventually abroad, even even into England. Yeah. And so is that kind of the major turning point where he's, you know, really well known, maybe in Montreal, really well known in like the Lowell, maybe Boston area. Uh, but now he's going to absolutely jump off almost like on a global stage well, here and then in Europe. Uh, was it when he hooked up with promoters? Is that kind of when things started changing? Yeah. So, you know, I kind of skipped over your last question, but it was after he beats uh, Oscar Mathis in Massachusetts that he declares himself as the strongest man in the world. And then he's going to start going on tour, you know, looking for challengers. He's going uh, across the, the United States and into parts of Canada too. He has several different promoters. Um, at one point, um, he has Richard Fox, who actually runs this newspaper called the Police Gazette. He has, um, he's part of P.T. Barnum Circus for a while. So he's kind of bouncing around between different promoters. But, you know, his, his claim to be the world's strongest man becomes more legit when in 1892 he goes to England and now he's he's in a more international audience and still nobody is is able to beat him and I think after that 1892 trip you know his claim might be more legitimate because it seemed like there was nobody in at least this kind of Atlantic region that could beat him Gotcha. And it was literally a situation where he would show up and be like, I'm going to lift a bunch of stuff. Who else wants to try to lift it with me? I bet you can't lift as much as me. Exactly. So uh, he would challenge the crowd. 
He would sometimes, you know, challenge specific people who had a reputation. We know, you know, some of the people that he bested were, you know, both in America and abroad. Richard Panel, Sebastian Miller, Franz Cyclops, uh, Banowski, <laughs> uh, August Johnson. So these these were people with their own regional reputations that Sear apparently beats in any number of different lifting competitions. And so this is where we see him cementing himself as as the world's strongest man, a title that he won't give up until uh, much later in his life, closer to his death. You know, if, if you want to, we can go over some of his, you know, feats of strength. That's where I was about to go next. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you provided the transition for me. Well done. Yeah, uh, so again, allegedly, his biggest feat of strength that wasn't overcome until the 1990s was his back lift, uh, which is, you know, lifting with the legs, a load that's mainly on on your back, and and he lifted uh, 4,337 pounds, Uh, you know, and yeah, take it for what you will. Um, he did a one-handed shoulder press of 350 pounds, uh, lifts a weight with both hands a few inches off the ground, 1,897 pounds, lifts a barrel of 433 pounds, a barrel full of cement, onto his shoulder with one arm. Um, there's some famous pictures that you can see of Sear um, with horses connected to straps that he's holding onto his arms. Yeah. And allegedly, the the horses were meant to pull as hard as they could in either direction, um, and he was going to resist them, and he resisted uh, the pull of four horses, two on each arm, for 55 seconds. And, and <laughs> if I can just qualify, according to one of his biographers... Uh, ben Wider, who's who's a big fan of, of Sears. So again, we have to take that into account. Sure. Were established officially before judges with many witnesses present. That's what he says. Including the horse. That's what Wider says. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like I came across one other that I thought was interesting. Five hundred and fifty one pounds with one finger. The one oh, finger, yeah. five hundred and fifty one yeah. pound lift. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what, what I will say that I think is interesting about Sear, though, is a lot of his most famous kind of acts and, and his, his methods for lifting were um, kind of drawn from his background. So his back lift, as part of his story, he would say that he learned to do this from lifting overturned wagons on farms. And, you know, the types of things he would lift, like barrels, these were kind of things that working class people were very familiar with, that they kind of knew the weight of, and that harkened back to his past as a lumber worker and a farmer. So it, it was really at this point about connecting his feats of strength with his working class history. Yeah, no, that's interesting, because I'd like to go into the kind of his promotion aspect. Now, when he gave these performances, because, again, I read that he's obviously a giant strongman, but he's also, like, super good storyteller. Uh, did he address the crowd? Did he talk about, you know, his days in the woods, days on the farm? Did he dress the part of a lumberjack? Like, how did this look like if I was going to see a Louis C? 
Yeah, well, you know, in, when he was first becoming famous, um, when he beat Oscar Mathis in Massachusetts, he was actually dressed in kind of fancy leather fur trapper's jacket. Um, and so this was obviously meant to signify his grandfather's profession as a fur trapper, but more generally this French-Canadian uh, affinity with uh, this type of work in the wilderness. Uh, later on, he was uh, uh, often wearing uh, a, a jersey with uh, Canada and a maple leaf on it as well. Um, and this is one of the reasons why he became this icon in, in Canada. You know, so I think his performances were really invoking his background, not just from Canada, but again, his background as a French Canadian rural working class individual. And in terms of kind of his speeches, I, I don't, I don't really have any of the, the, uh, direct text from what he said, but I think people would come away from his performances knowing that this was a, a, a French Canadian person from a rural working class background. Now, that's interesting. But before we kind of move on, I do want to mention, I, I can't help but mention, uh, did you come across the story with him and his hair and twirling some guys? Oh, I, I, I've heard the, the story... <laughs> of his hair with with people i have also so uh to give the listeners a little right. background i think he declared himself kind of a modern day like samson with the long hair and so he was very proud of his kind of long luxurious hair the story i read was that he would tie weights in his hair and and uh spin around uh but if you want to if you want to elaborate on the other story go ahead Jesse. yeah because you can see these anywhere. The one I came across, which I thought was amazing, was uh, there was three dudes from the crowd uh, that he got to hang on to his hair, and then he spun real fast enough that their feet left the ground. <laughs> which, uh, yeah, which, and, uh, and again, I, mean, I, I thought that's hilarious. I think that's one of those stories. You know, you you either uh, you have to believe it or, <laughs> or be very skeptical. But I don't know. No, that, I thought I just thought it was really really funny. Okay, so no, at his peak. I mean, how well-known was Louis C? Like, uh, are we talking, like, all the newspapers? If I stopped some random guy in Quebec City, would he have known who Louis C was? Yeah, I mean, again, I think um, it was much more a working-class audience. This uh, It wasn't highbrow, so it wouldn't, you know, you would if you were at a fancy dinner party, his name would be, you know, his, this type of profession would be taboo. They might not know his name, but I think, you know, among the working class in England, Canada, and the United States, I think, you know, it would have been well known for among the crowds that follow uh, strongman competitions, boxing competitions, things like that, that, there was this uh, gentleman from Canada who was the strongest man in the world. I think that that claim was pretty well known at, at the time. And again, there was no official governing body, sure. but by word of mouth, by newspapers, he, he had gotten to the point where he was, you know, in, in a popular sense, considered the strongest man in the world. No, that's awesome. Cause again, when I think of this 
time period, and I think of the sporting culture in this time period, I'm always thinking, you know, boxing and horse racing is kind of what I kind of perceive as like the mainstream sports. And I was just kind of curious as to how uh, his performances, how they would have drawn versus, you know, a boxing match. Boxing was much more popular. You know, audiences in, in thousands uh, for some of these strongman competitions, but boxing was really in the 1890s into the 1920s the most popular sport in america at least um before baseball really starts to overtake boxing boxers would have been the superstars of their time and um i think strong men were more affiliated with the kind of circus sideshow business gotcha. um and and you know they were very popular but it wasn't um kind of at, conceived of as a regulated athletic competition in the way that boxing very quickly became sure no and i want to get to a couple other things uh but i would like if you could maybe wind up like the arc of his career. Now, how do we see the maybe the decline in his career and then the end of his life? Yeah. So one one thing that's important to know, and and it, this also ties in with my other research, is going back to his childhood. His grandfather Pierre, um, you know, instilled in in uh, Louis the importance of being strong, but also showed Louis that. The way to get strong was by eating tremendous amounts of food. So uh, we see very early on uh, kind of rivaling his reputation as a strongman is his reputation as an eater, right? He ate sure. a tremendous amount of food. When he worked in lumber camps, he would challenge workers to out-eat him, and he would always beat the workers. And we know because of this, he gained uh, you know weight very quickly. At his height, I think he was, again, there's a range here, between 350 and 400 pounds. You know, at, at the height of his career, when he was very famous, when he had a lot of money to spend, he was eating a lot of very lavish dishes. So he report in England, he reportedly ate 20 pounds of meat in one meal. Wow. So, you know, that's a lot of pork pies, if you, if you think about <laughs> it that way. Um, and then, you know, another report says that he ate uh, an entire uh, roasted suckling pig, you know, by himself. And, and this goes back to kind of how people, particularly rural people, thought about strength. At the time, it was very simple to them. You know, the more you eat, the more energy you have to expend in any type of activity lifting or working and so you know the fact that he was able to out eat lumber workers and farm workers is actually very impressive because we know from dietary studies at the time that lumber workers and this was very you know well studied could eat up to eight thousand calories a day but that was mainly because their work demanded it. So Louis was still eating this tremendous amount of food, but was more in the kind of celebrity status and didn't need to work as hard. So we start to see him getting out of shape, essentially. And according sure. to some historians, obese. And this has uh, an effect on his body. He has a number of different health conditions, some of them having to do 
do with his uh, kidneys. We're not sure what the exact problem was, but by 1896, because of these health conditions, he really retires from competition. Uh, there's one instance where another straw, another Canadian strongman, Hector uh, Descartes, challenges him to a, a strongman competition in 1906. And this is really, I think, more of a way for uh, Sear to give his title of world's strongest man to another person. The, the competition is actually a draw, but in this competition, Sear um, doesn't say that he's not the strongest man, but says that, that uh, Dekari can take the title um, and, and use that title. Um, and so that's, again, in 1906. And we see that he's actually restricting his diet to try to lose weight. At one point, he's uh, eating only yogurt and drinking only milk for an extended period of time. But in uh, 1912, he passes away, likely because of his problems with overeating. Yeah, I mean, you're still younger than 50, right? Yeah, I think 49 years old. Yeah, no, that's kind of wild. No, I would like to talk of some of the some of the work uh, that you've been doing when it comes to Louis Sear and maybe what he, not just Louis Sear, the performer, but what the Louis Sear came to represent. Seemingly like he came to stand for the lumberjack class and how that was viewed and how like a body would be viewed uh, by urban people who may not have had contact with a lot of the lumberjack class. Yeah. So again, this, this ties in with some of my research on the racial sciences and, and French Canadians. We see, you know, the reason why Sear got to this level of fame is because of the way people thought about French Canadians. You know, they were different than normal Americans, but not so different that they could be kind of put on a pedestal, somebody to admire, right? So they were, you know, French Canadians like Sear were these people that spoke a different language, lived in this rural, forested community. Uh, uh, in Quebec, which might have given them this kind of natural abilities uh, to, to, to do a tremendous amount of work, to, to lift a tremendous amount of weight, that alone was kind of uh, a spectacle for Americans, you know, but he wasn't so different. He wasn't like, you know, famous boxer uh, uh, Jack Johnson, who was this African-American who was actually sure. one of the best boxers um in the 19 aughts and 19 teens but because of his black skin could really never reach that level of fame so uh sear was in between kind of being completely white and accepted and being you know uh, a different completely different racial group and then rejected so that was i think a very important part of sear's story the other thing i, I think is is sear's body represents a type of body um, that was becoming very rare in America. As America industrialized and urbanized, more people were working in factories or at desk jobs. Uh, you know, more people were uh, having their labor divided into very specific tasks. Sure. Uh, yeah. So working at, you know, one machine all day, not getting a lot of exercise. And uh, uh, Sear represented the type of body that people assumed Americans and Canadians had in the past. The strong, big body 
that could kind of tame landscapes, that could transform forest into farm, right? Uh, through sure. pure, pure physical might. You know, when machines were in, in America by the turn of the century doing much of the labor, it was interesting to see a person who seemed to almost be more powerful than a steam engine or more powerful than a steam drill, right? So I think there is almost a nostalgia sure. in, in Sears' body um, that people were were interested in. Kind of, I guess, semi-related. Uh, I'm curious how the image of Sear uh, kind of plays in to the image of kind of what masculinity was to Americans at the time. Like how, how they saw, like, what is a man's man supposed to look like and how does Sear fit into that kind of picture, I guess? To understand, you know, what Sear represented, I think you also need to understand briefly a little bit about this other emerging strong man named Eugene Sandow, who was actually from Britain, who really, you know, around 1900, becomes almost more famous than Louis Sear. Sandow was different, though. He wasn't this big, rotund, barrel-chested strongman uh, that came from a working-class background, but Sandow was actually more middle-class or even upper-middle-class. And instead of, you know, being most famous for lifting horses or lifting barrels, he was most famous because of his chiseled physique. Looking at pictures of Eugene Sandow, you see a body that's very familiar to modern Americans right now. A, a chiseled, well-defined body where you can see all the muscles. Sure. It starts to look much more like um, the kind of masculine body that we see in, in the movies and in TV shows. Um, and what was important about Sandow's body was that it expressed that he had a lot of discipline and a lot of leisure time to kind of craft his body into this kind of chiseled statuesque figure, which was very different than Seer, who whose body was, again, big, powerful, uh, but it came from his kind of... Uh, natural abilities as opposed to his ability to kind of have time to sculpt his body. So we see, again, in Seer, this nostalgic idea of what a masculine body used to be. Large, powerful, consumes a lot of food, but really um, it's, it's powerful just because, uh, uh, you know, nature dictates that it should be powerful. Whereas Sandow is almost fighting against nature and applying a scientific workout regime, very strict discipline on his diet to get this chiseled body. And Sandow's figure actually becomes the more kind of masculine figure going into the 20th century and the type of barrel-chested, working-class uh, strongman that Sia represent really becomes less significant moving into the 20th century. No, that's so interesting. I mean, the, the one thing that's cool about this period, of course, is that you can, you can compare pictures. There's tons of pictures yeah. out there of all these guys are super neat. So you got to check, especially the uh, the Seer mustache, I thought was pretty strong, for sure. One thing I do, I, if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to toss a hypothetical out. Because one thing that I've been thinking about uh, when researching for this and reading some of the stuff you've done and some of the stuff we talked about the first time is uh, what 
would the Lewis Sear story have been if Lewis Sear had been born a uh, middle-class guy in Toronto speaking English versus a French speaker from rural Quebec? Well, yeah, like I mentioned, I think, you know, what contributed to uh, Sears' fame was the story that he constructed around himself and around his body. Um, this idea that he was a working class individual, French Canadian heritage uh, with, you know, family who grew up in Quebec doing the type of, of rigorous work that French Canadians were affiliated with. And I think without that, all that background and that story, I don't think Sear could have been as famous as he became. Um, and, and, and that was essential for his uh, story. But also, you know, if we believe how Sear built his body, it was through doing work outdoors, sure. through doing agricultural work, through doing work in the forest. And, you know, again, the more modern types of professions in factories or behind desks did not allow Canadians and Americans to uh, claim that same kind of strength built from the type of work they did. And we actually start to see around this time, middle-class individuals starting to emulate the bodies and actions of working class people as a way to keep themselves in shape. And that's another part of my research is, you know, how Sear uh, affected what middle-class college students were doing in the gymnasium, how people like Sear affected that. Yeah. What, what was that? What were they doing? Were they all going up, lifting up sheep? Almost. I mean, everything, but so we, we have, <laughs> um, you know, of course, around this time, leisure culture developing among the most elites to get back to nature, to emulate the actions of, of rural working class people. You know, the best example is Theodore Roosevelt, who thought of him, himself as less of a man. And so to build his masculinity, we, you know, a lot of people know Roosevelt went out west and became a right. cowboy. But before that, in 1878 and 1879, Roosevelt went up to rural Maine and befriended uh, two lumberjacks named William Sewell and Wilmot Dow and, and went into lumber camps and, uh, you know, befriended lumberjacks and actually wrestled with lumberjacks to kind of <laughs> test his. That's and awesome. so getting in, getting in contact with nature like Sear did as a younger man, is a way to build that type of nostalgic body that Sear represented. But it goes even further than that. We know that you know, as phys physical education, or as it was called at the time, physical culture developed, um, some of the leading people in, in that profession actually understood that the best way to build a healthy male body was to do rural working class activities or, or working class activities more generally. So uh, Dudley Allen Sargent was a kind of a leader in creating modern physical education. He worked at Harvard, Bowdoin, Yale briefly. And, you know, he was a rural worker. He was briefly a strong man himself. And he learned from those experiences that, you know, college students 
weren't getting this type of physical exercise that workers were. And so he, and he knew that students at Harvard were not gonna start taking up working class jobs. So what he actually did was create a physical fitness curriculum that emulated the actions of workers. So for example, in his uh, 1904 book, Health, Strength and Power, we see uh, Sergeant uh, addresses, you know, particularly middle and upper class men and instructs them on how to do these exercises that are just literally the actions of workers uh, with diagrams. So some of the <laughs> exercises he suggests are striking the anvil. You know, again, you, you know, it's sure. in a gym, but you mimic the actions of striking an anvil, uh, rope pulling, uh, throwing the lasso, driving stakes, like driving, you know, yeah. tent stakes, yeah. <laughs> uh, wood chopping, sewing, sure. uh, sawing wood, you know, these, these, so you would literally have seen in Harvard, a gymnasium where these young men are, are emulating rural working class activities as a way to build proper masculinity. And, you know, that's partially that's awesome. based off of people like Sear. And we know actually uh, Sergeant did meet Sear. Uh, he, he actually measured him uh, and, and took his measurements and took his weight and declared that he was, in fact, one of the strongest uh, men alive. But but Sargent's very interesting. He actually got his hands literally on a lot of the most famous kind of figures of the sporting life at the time. John Sullivan. Sure. Uh, he measured um, Theodore Roosevelt was one of his students at a certain <laughs> point in time. So he, he's interesting in his own right. But yeah, I was hoping we would we would get into the sergeant stuff because though it's it's um, only tangentially related, I think it's important because that is I think one of the more significant effects that Sear and and people from Sear's class had on American culture is that you know at a time when the country is industrializing, people look to French Canadian immigrants and these other workers who were doing strenuous work outdoors and saw them as kind of models of masculinity. No, oh, that's so awesome. Now, as we're closing up, I'm curious, what are you going to do now with all this research that you're doing on Louis Sear and masculinity and the identities? Uh, so this is gonna be kind of fun. Yeah, I, this was originally part of my dissertation, but actually, you know, I, I've written a lot, so I have to <laughs> drop this out of my book manuscript. So none of this material is included in my book manuscript, but I'm hoping to publish it as an article independently or, you know, perhaps even build on it and make it into another book project. Who knows? But that'll be a few years down the road. That's awesome. Well, this has been a ton of fun. Again, we've been talking to Jason Newton about Lewis Sear and a lot of the things that come about from a Lewis Sear conversation. So thank you so much for coming back, Jason. This has been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jesse. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. 
If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.